Welcome back, fellow spy fans. Once again, we're talking about the Night Manager. Uh, this week, we're talking about episode five. Um, if you haven't seen the show or haven't caught up on our previous episodes, you can go back and listen to those. Or uh, if you just kind of want to listen in now, just a quick recap. Our protagonist, um, Jonathan Pine, played by Tim Hiddleston, Tom Hiddleston, sorry, uh, is a night manager at some really upscale hotel, comes across some really incriminating information about an arms dealer, and is recruited by British intelligence officer played by Olivia Coleman to take down our main antagonist, Richard Roper, played by Hugh Laurie. Um, last week was kind of like more of a transition episode. But we saw things kind of starting to explode uh, between him and Corky and uh, Jonathan Pine being put up as the front man for the company Trade Pass. Um, This episode, we get to see the big arms deal kind of go down. But before we go into that, I wanted to discuss uh, everything that's happening with uh, Angela and Limpet. Mm -hmm. Uh, She starts seeing a lot of pressure, lots and lots of pressure. I kind of wanted to go over that like briefly before we get into like big meat of the episode, which is kind of the arms deal. But um, <clears throat> she's getting it from every side. Uh, I, I guess people at the River House, as well as CIA on America, like her buddy from over America got reassigned to ATF stuff. Uh, the funding for Olympic got pulled. Um, the permanent secretary removes Rex as in charge of uh, international enforcement. So he's reassigned. He's like promoted and he's like not happy about it, but yeah. Can we talk about that? I got, I got notes on that one. Yeah. I'd love, I, that's kind of where I wanted to start out. Like that was a, like if, if you're team bad guy, right. Or team, well, the justification sure. that all of the people helping Richard Roper in government positions is, the world needs a Richard Roper and us keeping tabs on him is better than not. And so we got to protect him, even though they're getting paid to protect him. Um, But, you know, we keep hearing this justification. It's national security. We're protecting the nation. And so if you're on team bad guy, the, the, the idea is Rex doesn't want to play ball. Angela doesn't want to play ball. So the permanent secretary basically promotes Rex out of his position so he no longer makes the calls for Angela's operation as well as Limpet. What do you what do you think about that? Is that like a good move for Team Bad Guy, or like what are your thoughts on that? Um, well, to to answer that, I think we got to look at the actual promotion that he's getting, um, right. or that he's that he's being offered. Right. Um, so we established the permanent secretary. I'm pretty sure it's the highest level of unelected official of any bureau. Um, what he's being offered is called the private secretary. This Mm -hmm. is the person that is responsible for, uh, filling in, um, Downey street, like the crown, the Royals, the queen, uh, on, on intelligence matters. Oh, so it's kind of like the president's briefer every morning that they get. Well, sort of, but you know, the president is an executive office, and the and you know, the queen is not. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh uh, yeah, that, there's that big difference. But I meant like every morning the president gets a guy that walks in, or a lady that walks in and briefs. Is that is that what he's getting? Yes. 
That's, oh, oh, okay. I see. I see. That's what he's what he's getting offered. So um, basically, it's like uh, you know, not not in the same way that uh, it was meant in The Godfather, but like an offer he can't refuse. Like it's it's such a prestigious position. Um, I'm a little unclear here on whether like I think like almost it's almost a it seems like it's basically a prerequisite that you have to be a knight um, to even be considered uh, for this. Or I was having a little trouble reading exactly how it works, but like maybe it's like if you get this offer, it pretty much comes with a knighthood. Uh, this this position. So what they're appealing to here is his is his what now? Um, I mean, I'm sure it comes with a big fat paycheck, but also it's just like it's like uh, for a for a British citizen, it's kind of like star dazzling kind of thing. Right. I mean, but he well, didn't seem maybe very I happy mean, there's about it. Different British people have different opinions about Right. <laughs> but but the thing is he's he's accepting it. This is not something you force someone on. This is like an enormous honor that you Well, also maybe it's something you don't you really kind of can't with a small C say no to. That's what I kind of felt. Because it looked like he didn't want it, and then the secretary gives him that like death stare. Unless you don't want it, you know, like kind of like something like you know, like in in a lot of cultures, there's certain things you don't say no, no to. And if the queen is like, you're going to be my assistant, like you, like you're going to be the assistant to like basically the crown. You don't say no, like that. That's like things are going to get. You're going to have it. Like what is it? The self. You're going to have a bad time, right? Like, like <laughs> that. That's how I felt, but. Like, is did you get the impression that he kind of voluntarily was like, wow, I can't turn this down. You know, this is like the biggest honor someone can receive. I'll tell you. Yeah. My impression is he's voluntarily taking it because he does want it. But he's wow. also kind of, you know, I mean, he's got some mm, guilt. He's feeling some guilt right. about uh, about being a sellout. Mm-hmm. But but from there, I go to, you know, I mean, we have established some things about his character. What in his character does Team Bad Guy see? Like, I, what I'm worried, if I'm Team Bad Guy, this is what I'm worried about. Like, let's say someone makes this proposal in the, in the meeting room where we say, what are we going to do about Rex and Angela? Uh-huh. And someone makes this proposal. Uh, I might raise my hand and say, what's to stop him from his first briefing, uh, with the Royals being, well, here's what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> and would it matter? And could they do anything about it? I don't know enough. I definitely don't know about enough about British politics to answer that question, but I'm smart well, enough if Roper to, is to, that to, highly, ask, to ask it. Right. If Roper is that highly connected, right? Because uh, that's kind of what he tells Angela. He's like, we don't have enough allies. You know what I mean, and and maybe it just goes so high up he can't he can't fight it. That's that's kind of why I felt like the impression of me was it was kind of like well since you don't want to play ball with us we're just gonna promote you out of it so you can't make this decision anymore. And yeah, go tell the Royals either they're not gonna believe you or hey they probably are just as connected as as we are. Yeah, again I you know. I don't see uh, what's stopping them from just from 
stopping her from just overruling him and saying, you know, look, Limpet's closed down and we're replacing Angela Byrne. That's all there is to say about it. I'm your boss. Shut up. Right. Yeah. I, I definitely can see the appeal. It just, I don't know. It just kind of felt weird. The whole thing felt weird. And that's, that's that, like, what's really sticking to me is that line he gives Angela is like, we didn't have enough allies, you know, on top of the Americans not funding limpid anymore. Like she just gets hit by every which way, like from all angles, you know? And I, you know, I think we should talk about some of these too. Do you think the pressure, um, is is working on her or do you think it's going to provoke her or do you think it's it's shooting themselves in the foot like as in they're just incriminating themselves like like who's gonna believe angela at this point right is i guess what they're thinking and they're, they're kind of do it underhanded like drunkle visits her at her house you know mm-hmm. like definitely putting the implication like you know, you you, you don't want to mess with this like i'm here to be your friend well you know, i'm very yeah, yeah. I mean, there's that undercurrent, but also he's kind of making the uh, the Billy Crudup speech at the end of MI3 when when you know when we, it was Billy Crudup, right? That that betrayed uh, was working for Philip Seymour oh, Hoffman yeah, yeah, yeah. and right, stuff. Right. And you know, he makes his speech about like this is for the good of the country. This is for the good of the crown. You know, like we we have to get in bad bed with bad guys sometimes to do the right thing for what's best for Britain. Mm-hmm. You know, in Crudup's case, it was the U S um, but that was, that was the text. If you want to say the subtext is there's a veiled threat involved. Um, I could buy that. Is it a good idea? Um, I, sure. I don't know. They seem to be just kind of throwing the, like you said, kind of throwing the kitchen sink at her. Um, right, and it, and it and and you know he says to her, "I believe you've been lying to me about Limpet. You have an insider. I need to know who he is." And uh, you know he's really pressuring her for information, and she's not giving it up. And and it ends up leading where they like break into her house and beat up her husband. You know, and she's been trying to protect them as much as she can, like keep them out of the intelligence world. You know, she's a very dedicated wife, even though you know she may not be like head over heels in love with the guy. It's her husband and father of her child, you know, and she's been doing everything to protect him from this world. And it, it comes home, you know, so it's, it's, they, they really got, you know, put, putting, putting her on the third degree here. You know what I mean? And I'm, and I'm wondering like, is this a good idea? And, and I don't know, like it getting so close to home might make her feel like she really can't, especially since Rex was reassigned the funding for limpets got she she must feel like she's completely alone in the world she's got nobody i mean i don't i if if we're still trying to answer the question like i don't think it's the kind of overkill that we see in enemy of the state um oh yeah <laughs> I, I i could totally see all this stuff working i mean at right. least on at least on paper and uh-huh. at least to uh you know a certain macho mindset uh, you know, a pregnant woman's got certain kind of survival instincts, maybe that, uh, you know, an unmarried, uh, unpregnant younger woman might not have. Right. <laughs> I see. Um, um, although, you know, I'm not, I mean, I'm not saying I'm not advising that you, uh, you know, threaten the mama bear. 
and corner her. But, uh, you know, as long as she's got a way out, which she does, she could just kind of drop it. Um, But we know she's not going to drop it because she had, we have her speech. We know we've established like she's got an Ahab white whale kind of complex regarding Roper. So, and they might not know that. It doesn't look like they know that. That her Ahab thing? Well, they made a comment in episode one that she just was relentless and wouldn't let it go, that she had this conspiracy theory or something. Oh, that's right. Actually, I think Mayhew brought it up, that she's always had a boner for Roper. Yeah, that's true. But I don't know if Team Bad Guy knows that. Oh, I see what you mean. And so without without that piece of information, you know, like, remember the the permanent secretary when she first uh, started putting the screws in on Rex was to ask him, like, how well do you know her? Which right. implies that they don't have like a full psychological profile breakdown on her, which actually they should because she used to work for MI6. Right. You would think they had some sort of, yeah. And she, she did tours, right? Like she yeah, was yeah, yeah. out uh, internationally at stations and stuff and did a lot of like real Intel work, you know? Uh, so I, they would have something on her, I guess. I, I don't know. Uh, but you know, whether it's a good idea or not, it it's really good for some good storytelling because it really does kind of make you feel like the pressure's on for her, and is she gonna get out of it or whatever? Right now, um, they shut Limpet down, or mm-hmm. at least withdraw the. I mean, well, Limpet was always a, a joint operation or or an American led operation. I mean, it doesn't feel like an American led operation. No, it was more. It was more British with the international enforcement agency or whatever that uh-huh. uh, Angela is running, but because of her contacts with America, they got American funding. So it was kind of like a a joint type of operation. Um, I'm I'm sure, you know, if it worked out, uh, the U.S. probably we would have taken more credit than we deserve, <laughs> right? Since we're cuff, we're we're footing the bill, you know, but. Uh, no, it seems like it was her op that she was running. Right. And her friend, it's uh, Stedman, right? Um, mm-hmm. With with the Vulcaneers. See, there on the U.S. side, they did what they did the simple thing. They just reassigned him. No muss, no fuss. Right. Um, whereas on the, on the British side, they're doing it all complicated. Um, but the weird thing is, to me, kind of is like, I mean, even after even after he gets pulled out and they, and he tells her limpets shut down, like her, her and her people are still working mm-hmm. They They still seem to be, you know, getting paychecks and doing mm-hmm. their, doing their operational stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, is there, is there some point where they, isn't there some point in the series where they actually like close down Angela's office? Uh, maybe the next episode, but that hasn't happened yet. Okay. It's been a while since I watched. So, I've been purposely trying to stay away from getting ahead of myself for these because I've, I've actually been enjoying this format quite a bit. Um, oh, yeah, me but, too. Me too. Uh, but, I mean, they don't even really need to shut it down with everything they're doing. But you're right. How come they didn't just reassign her? I mean, Rex was the one to make that decision. They tried to get him to do it. He wouldn't do it. So now they just reassigned him, and they're probably going to find someone who will reassign her or take her off or something. Right. Yeah, yeah. 
But that, by the way, that's how we get into this mess to begin with, is they pressured Rex. Rex shows the permanent secretary the evidence that Angela has. That information gets back to Roper, which I think is a good segue to the, the big meat of this episode, which is the big arms deal, as well as like Roper kind of, Roper sussing out the leak. Um, I think last, last time you had mentioned, like kind of as a bad tradecraft idea, like why... Why did they have Apostol write his handwriting on the paper? And um, they actually pointed that out this episode, that that's how they figured out Apostol was involved, was they saw his handwriting on the documents that got leaked, that uh, Rex had shown um, the permanent secretary. So this kind of is what kicks off Roper figuring out someone's on the inside, and he's got to find out who. And um, you know, I just wanted to point out that you spotted that last week. So I think I think a uh, good job on that because uh, that's that's really even though it's Apostol's handwriting, they're still able to figure out. Well, the documents were there. They asked Apostol to connect the dots. Who had the documents before Apostol? Um, and so he's like, "Well, it's only me or Sandy that had those documents. So it could only be somebody within my circle. So it could have been Jed, Jonathan, or Corky." Those are kind of the only people, unless it's, you know, some of the help, but I, de- I doubt the help could get through to a secret office or something. I don't know. Yeah. Can I, I want to, I want to talk briefly about, um, it's like a counterfactual kind of thing. Um, a lot of, a lot of the stuff with, uh, on team bad guy trying to figure out who's the traitor, right? Um, it all... It, it makes sense only only if there was only ever one copy of these documents, um, either physical, as we've seen, or maybe on Roper's personal hard drive, not connected to the internet. Which, by the way, I noticed, uh, actually, that makes me remember that he didn't have a computer on his desk, and we never see him using a computer. Or any of the, That's right. the team bad guys, guys. So um, you know, and that. Well, Corky had that laptop when he was looking up uh, Pine. Okay, okay. Uh, I forgot. I forgot about that. But in general, and you know, maybe Roper's just not a computer guy. Right. <laughs> uh, but you know, if I mean, it, hmm, what what do these documents actually represent? If there's only a single copy in existence then everything they do makes sense but does it make sense that there's only a a single copy in existence what purpose does it serve just sitting in roper's desk and he's never shown it to anyone it's just personal notes to himself you see what i'm saying like the documents well that's one thing that bothered me too was why are these financial documents saying napalm on them and stinger missiles and shit like you would think they'd be code words, why? unless it's so. Unless it's so, he has some leverage on the buyers. By why the do way, they have I'm the, not the only. Why do they have the trade pass uh, letterhead on on the oh, top yeah. of them? Right. Um. You know that's unnecessary. Like these documents, like physically on the screen as I'm watching as an audience, these look like documents that are meant to not for everyone in the organization, but that the, they were printed out so that you could share them so you could make copies so sandy could have a copy and corky could have a copy and roper could have a copy and maybe pass them on to apostol as he's the lawyer working on the thing 
but everything in the everything in the show falls apart and doesn't make sense if you can imagine that there was ever a second or a third copy in existence of these papers every decision and every um insight or deduction that roper or anyone else makes all rests on the idea these documents only existed in roper's little private drawer which on its face doesn't make sense but i just wanted to kind of get that out of the way because when we get into the talking about like how they're they're gonna start making their now if we consider the roper's team to be the villagers and they're trying to find out who their werewolf is mm-hmm. um all that like uh there's there's way more logical easy conclusions that they could have made if multiple copies existed everything hinges on there only having ever been one copy and that does i will go back and thank you for mentioning it i will underline what i said in episode four when she showed them to apo like don't show them the actual documents just retype the information right oh exactly and and don't ask them to handwrite stuff unless they need docu- legal documentation later to prove yes this information is valid or something, but yeah, you're right. They should have never. Yeah, I really liked that you pointed that out, and I, I really wanted to highlight that for this episode because it really, it it they they hinge on that on Roper going. Well, that's why we had to get rid of Oppo, right? It was obviously his handwriting and stuff. Okay, you know, well, so. yeah, Oppo's definitely in trouble because of the handwriting. But like, here's if if there was ever like if Sandy had had a copy of the documents, mm-hmm. then. Uh, the most logical chain of of events would be first, like, say, hey, Sandy, you were the guy, con- you know, in charge of talking to Apostol. Mm-hmm. Did you ever accidentally fuck up and show him these documents or maybe leave them lying around somewhere where he could have got a hold of them? Because we've got a copy of it with his handwriting all over it. And also... You know, the intelligence people in London have a copy of it. The con- I mean, the first thing you would question Sandy or, again, anyone that possibly could have had access to the documents at all. Mm-hmm. And you would assume that it's Apostol. Apostol's your werewolf. His handwriting's all over it. Right. The only... I, 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 yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, you're 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 absolutely right. Like it, it's it, Apostol is definitely in trouble, um, but uh, clearly the the story wants us to be able to believe that um, Roper has deduced that there is a mole, and the mole is one of what six people. I thought his list was four, but I would agree it should be bigger. It should include everyone on his fucking staff, you know. Yeah, he's got a lot of people working for him at his, um, you know, his peninsula Spanish castle uh, compound. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's 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 tons of people that should be under suspicion. Um, but I think I think Roper is on a tight list of four, which mm-hmm. is good for the story. Doesn't super make sense for a you know a pure plot kind of situation. And I think the four were Sandy Corky. Pine and Jed. Uh, yeah, those are the. Well, he first said the only two people that had him were me and Sandy. 
Uh, well, and this is a good place to, you know, the, the episode begins on the airplane flying to some, I don't know, compound out in the middle of nowhere. Do, do you know what country that were, they were headed, by the way? I, I think I missed that. Um, they're going, uh, they're going to, oh, uh, are you talking about uh, Haven? Yeah, they're going to a compound called Haven, which is kind of like a black market, uh, like, kind of place that... In or around, kind of cultivated. In, in or around Iraq. Okay, so there's somewhere in. Oh, that's right. He said you'll be, you'll feel at home then. That's right. It, so it had to be somewhere around Iraq. Um, but on the plane ride, he brings this up to rope uh, to to Pine. He's like, "Hey, the intelligence got these documents. The only people that had these documents was me and Sandy." And then he, what I liked is he directly asked Pine, "Are you the leak?" You know. Like, he's like, there's a leak. And he's like, are you the leak? And uh, I like that because, you know, in interrogation, it's really important to ask direct questions like that and see their response, you know. But, you know, Pine just says no and they move on and then they get to the compound. Um, and this is where I guess he's planned like kind of a pre-sales decision show where he's just going to show off the weapons to the buyer. Mm -hmm. Um one of the things I liked is when they get there, they start handing out food and clothes and supplies to like poor people on the border. So uh, I guess it's he's using his charity that Trade Pass, uh, I guess, donates to or, or that Roper is in charge of that, uh, you know, gives out uh, supplies to like poor areas or third world areas or something. And that's his cover. And he says that this this is our cover for to explain our presence. So that that was kind of clever, you know, and probably is kind of accurate, quote unquote. You know, and I think I'll leave it there. But, I think it's uh, a fa I think it's a fantastic cover. I think humanitarian aid distribution is uh, the best cover that he possibly could have arranged, and you know, he's backing it up in you know uh, a speech, you know, at a conference that mm -hmm. that he gave way back in episode one. Mm -hmm. um where he was explaining his motivations uh for like you know uh humanitarian and economic building exercises and how you know I don't do this I actually don't do this out of the goodness of my heart I do it because it is good for the world economy and that's good for me mm -hmm. um so he's got yeah he's got a huge elaborate and I think really like worthy of applause cover story as, Absolutely. as as this guy that because it um you know i mean it i mean it's great to pose as this superhero guy but he's not even doing that he's kind of posing as a um crass self-interested uh capitalist who just happens to be doing the things that uh, will make the world a better place in his view. And he has a very compelling argument for why that's the case. And it simultaneously allows him to travel to places uh, like the kind of places he would need to travel in and out of are, you know, as an arms dealer are kind of exactly the kinds of places that, you know, just looking at his itinerary would match that of the, somewhat humanitarian but mostly capitalist guy that he is it's right. really fucking good yeah i think it's very very clever um and definitely 
Yeah, I, I, you're right. It definitely um, deserves applause on that. Um, but one of the first things that happens when they touch down, you know, they're, they're opening up some champagne and drinking and Sandy's like pouring drinks. And as everybody walks away, Pine whispers to Sandy and mentions, hey, Roper thinks there's a leak. And Sandy's like, what? No, that's bollocks, you know, or whatever. I thought that was really clever of Pine um, because he he doesn't. He does it secretly with with Sandy, kind of making him look. Hey, man, the, the you know Roper's a little suspicious of everybody, so it's kind of like, hey, Sandy, by the way, watch your back, or like, hey, I heard this, but he can also kind of fish for info that Sandy has. Like, did Roper tell Sandy? You know, and it and Sandy might be like, yeah, I know, I don't know who it is, or by Sandy being like, whatever, that's stupid. No, he's not. That that might tell Pine that, oh, well, he didn't tell Sandy. Why did he only tell me? Maybe he thinks I am the mole. Maybe he really did think I was the leak or something. Well, it wouldn't um, make it wouldn't make a goddamn lick of sense for Roper to only confide in Pine. He would right. he would be confiding in Sandy first at this point. Right. Possibly a toss up between Corky and but here's what I like here's what I like to imagine, even though we don't see it is that he did talk to each of them. He hasn't talked to Jed yet, because we will see that scene. Mm -hmm. But I think that off camera, he also talked to Sandy, and he also talked to Corky, and he caused them all to maybe like want to look out for each other and kind of stir the pot and see what comes up out of it. Um, But that also that Sandy is smart enough to play ignorant when pine mentions roper's suspicions because like i said it doesn't make any sense for roper to tell pine and not sandy to me at all really so you, don't, only, you don't yeah. think of well if you isolate who has what information you can get more information from that so if you tell everybody everybody knows and so you can't really you know, it's like the control to the variable experience. Like when you do an experiment, you're going to control and then a variable. If you, if you tell everybody, I mean, well, I mean, you you have a good point that if you tell everybody, they might all be on their toes and might be stirring the pot. And then you just like, you just kind of throw a wrench in the situation and create a little chaos and see how everybody operates. So that, I guess that's one way, which is you're pointing out. But another way is if you give it to one person, you can isolate and determine how that information gets out or if they are going to tell somebody or how they're going to react to that. Um, I mean, I could make a case. I could make a case for not telling Sandy, uh, even though we don't see it on screen. Uh, that case would be Sandy was the most directly involved with dealing with Apostol. And so if Sandy had access to the papers by hook or by crook, like the one thing he knows is that at some point Apostol had the papers. That is a stone fact. Mm-hmm. How they got there is up to question. Um, the 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 fact that it's literal copies and not just like the information, but literally like you can see the papers were stolen from my desk by someone. Well, it wasn't Apostol because I don't think Apostol ever visited the right uh the villa um so it's got to be someone else and um 
again, like I said, like, you know, I think, I think if I was being really thorough, I'd be questioning all the kitchen staff at my villa as well. Like why, why also like on his, on his short list of people, the kitchen staff is not on his list. Um, Frisky and Tabby are not also not on his list. Both of those guys had, had equal access, you know? Um, I mean, he tells Pine, like, you know, he, uh, uh, Pine counters Roper's uh, suspicions, you know, uh, even just mentioning Sandy. Pine is like, he'd never betray you. And, and Roper counters that with anyone. Anyone could be a werewolf. Right. And I think he believes that. I believe Absolutely. he believes that. Uh, yeah. I, I, that's why it's like uh, a lot of these things, you know, where it's making it look like Roper's incompetent. I'm, I'm wondering if he's just kind of watching and letting things play out a lot of the time. Cause one of the things he does in this episode is he brings all of his suspects that he's identified as suspects to the Haven. And, and during this uh, uh, trade-off, you know, um, which I think we should maybe discuss it a little bit. Uh, but I, 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 I think he's, he's not as dumb as, uh, it looks on the surface, you know what I mean? I think he's actively paying attention. Um, yeah, I'm, hope, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping, you know, I held off on watching episode six. I want to watch that one clean. Uh, six will be our final episode. It's a mini series of six episodes, but uh, I, I'm, I'm fingers crossed, hoping as an audience member that, yeah, that, that some of the stuff we see in Roper's behavior in episode four and five will make more suddenly like more evil genius three-dimensional chess kind of sense in episode six somehow. Yeah, me too. (laughs) The big deal happens and there's a buyer uh, and they're going to show off. Man, this was really messed up. Like Roper flat out like cleared the town. Like, there was a small village nearby, and he, like, cleared the town to, like, show off the toys. Um, you know, and, like, just, like, bombs his place, man. It was kind of messed up. But, you know, they made you feel better. They was like, oh, yeah, I made all the people leave. Um, but you find out later that some old lady wasn't was too old to, like, leave and ends up, like, in the crossfire. It, it's pretty messed up. But uh, uh, the code name for... For uh, this little fireworks display for the seller, kind of like a demo, um, was Guy Fox, and I thought that was kind of cute because uh, you know I, that's that's the old story where he bombed the the building. Um, I didn't catch that, know. but I like it. Yeah, it was, yeah. And then, um, but what, one of the one of the pieces of tradecraft I really wanted to point out is you know Pine is the face of Trade Pass, and you know he's taken onto it like a like perfectly where he looks like this young upstart CEO really, you know, charming, shaking hands and talking. And I liked that he was able to glean from the buyer that the buyer went to LSE. Um, so this could kind of narrow down who he is, get some info. So when he's writing down the information about when the trade-off is going to happen, he, he can kind of get that out to when he sends out the note, um, which I thought, sorry, can I, you, I expl- was- can you explain LSE? The London School of Economics. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, the buyer was like, yeah, I went to the London School of Economics and I learned everything I know about business from your own capital, London, you know. Um, 
And uh, I, I just thought it was really cool that he was able to just, you know, in his chart, you know, kind of take it. It takes me back to when we did the man who knew too much 56 and just watching Louis Bernard, like just so masterfully get all that information out of Jimmy Stewart. Like he, like he was just breathing. He wasn't even trying, you know, uh, it, it kind of made me feel like that. I saw, I saw it a slightly different way. Uh, I saw, I did, I did applaud pine for trying to, as you say, in this way of like casually gleaning information, but, me having missed uh, maybe the significance of the London School of Economics, uh, I thought the the buyer was a, a very um, just kind of a stone wall of information, you know, just mm. just not giving up anything. And right. and but uh, you know, uh, backup plans start writing down uh, license plate numbers. Yeah, right. He gets a ton of those. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but uh, yeah, this would lead us into like uh, Pine's big play. Um, and he, he starts this. I, we don't see him do this, but I presume he's the one that sabotaged the generator. Sure. So let's let's first establish, though, why he's making his play now. Like mm-hmm. what what the timing is. Um, I, and I think it's just two things. It's first of all, he thinks he's got enough information to give and also he's seen the weapons display and he's horrified by it and uh and knows that this is this is no joke so yeah he's gonna he's gonna start uh taking like instant i mean this is when he starts making very risky plays everything he's done so far has been fairly cautious fairly Mm -hmm. fairly holding back but uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Of of course, he's the one that sabotages the generator. Is that necessary? I mean, his oh. his objective. Well, he's got two objectives here, or well, he should only have one objective, which is to get the information out of the camp. Now right. they did they did collect all the cell phones, so he's gonna have to sneak out the fence. Uh, is sabotaging the generator a help for him? on that mission i would say no i'd say it's a hindrance uh well, he's I, in a military camp that's probably being watched and patrolled how else would he get out oh so that they don't have lights and okay right okay so it is a help it is a help right. um i mean presumably somebody would have night vision but i mean they still would have to go get them on you know i'm sure they're not just wearing them all day right especially if the camp's lit regularly Sure, but he thinks this is important enough to make to make his play now, right? Um, and but he, in the middle of this sabotage, he he waits till Roper leaves his tent that Jed was in, and we get to see Roper kind of interrogating Jed a little bit. But I, I wanted to talk about like why the fuck is Pine seeing Jed? It, I mean, he needed cash to pay the cab driver to get the note out, but why would he go see Jed? Corky's already on his ass about, you know, his, his, you know, uh, un, uncomfortable relationship with Jed to begin with. Corky's got like, is, is like, I've got a hard on chasing, you know, Pine. Why would he go see Jed? I'm sure you could just steal cash from somebody. And doesn't he have cash as Andrew Birch? I'm certain. Well, that's where I was going to raise my hand. I'm certain he should have just had cash. 
right? Um, 100%. 100%. you know they're just they're just dragging Jed more into the story than I'm. You know I'm personally morally certain that uh, Jed plays a much smaller role in the novel than she does in this TV series. Um, I haven't personally read any uh, Le Carre, but the movies that I have seen. he strikes me as a person that really only thinks about men and men's point of view and that female characters are probably just very incidental. Um, I think the Jed character has all the hallmarks. Now I did check. And I mean, she does exist in the novel, the, the romance between pine and her happens, but I feel like I see all the hallmarks of uh, the people sitting down with the novel and saying, we got to, we got to, we got to punch up this female character. You know, notice they had to do a gender flip on, uh, you know, because Burr was originally Leonard Burr. So they do a gender swap on her. Awesome. We get some Olivia And make her pregnant, which is even more awesome. (laughs) Right. Uh, She's probably my favorite character the whole show is Angela. I, I love her. Yeah. I I will I will lay money on the idea that the permanent secretary is a male in the novel. <laughs> right. Okay. And, and that was just another spot where they saw an opportunity. Well, well, here, here's an easy way to bring another female character, you know, into the story. And everything just everything about Jed's character just feels like uh people trying like scriptwriters taking notes from the production company and saying, you got to give the females more stuff to do. Yeah. Which is a laudable goal. Let's be clear about that. In my opinion. Uh, But sometimes, sometimes when it is just done for the sake of doing it, you can, you can kind of see the, you can kind of see the fingerprints around it. And, um, yeah, I mean, well, uh, Jed being here, too. Uh, can I talk about that for a second? Well, yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. Um, you know, Frisky, it's not my imagine. It's not my imagination that it's very weird that uh, Roper brings her to Haven, flies her in. Uh, Frisky comments on it. He says, this is this is weird. The boss has never done this before. Corky comments on it. Yeah, he so, says it's a bad sign. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure, but from from Roper's perspective, what's he trying to accomplish? I guess, I mean, it's, it's funny. I mean, he does want to give her a slap and he does want to put the psychological pressure on her. This is when he, like, werewolf checks her. Yeah, that's what I was, I was saying earlier. I think he's bringing all of his personal suspects in to the camp so he can kind of you know do his interrogation on all of them you know what i mean and that part that part makes sense what doesn't make sense to me is pine needing to visit jed the excuse seems to be the cash uh but that's an excuse that i don't think either of us thinks holds water no it doesn't and and he on top of that he tells her exactly who he is 
and then they fucking kiss. Which, I guess if he wants to keep up the... Like, either the relationship is real or not for him, right? And if and if it's real, he's going to kiss her. And if it's not, he's got to keep up the ruse of the relationship. Like, you know, if he's trying to, like, use her or something. But, like, wh- why would he go out of his way to tell him all of the... To, I work for British intelligence. Uh, I, I've like, we set up the whole kidnap. Like now is not the time to tell her everything. Like you already know Corky's up your ass. You know, Roper's already suspicious. Why would you say that? Anybody could have heard you outside those tents. It's not like they're soundproof. Right. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think they're just, I think they're just trying to crowbar Jed into more of the story than her character, her original character, uh, deserves or can support without a right. deeper rewrite. You know, before we get off this, or I definitely, there's something I want to say before we get off this subject. Something that's occurred to me many times watching this show is that this also could have been Jed's story. Like, I think I've also seen that movie um, maybe like just, in in like a more classic uh black and white era of movies like this movie could have been like this story could have been told from her perspective where oh yeah absolutely she just she has a problematic marriage with a man that she uh you know has some vague suspicions about what he does for a living a charming stranger intrudes into their lives and he's very mysterious and he's very fucking sexy um (laughs) and you know and what happens with that and her process of going along and eventually at this point finding out like oh my god the guy i fucked is a spy um you know it it really could have gone that way um so there's a version of the story where jed i can see there's a version of the story where jed is 100% 100% central in the version of the night manager that we're getting. Um, as much as I like watching uh, Bateki on screen, um, it's, you know, just some of it feels forced. I, I, I feel the same, especially about this scene. And I think there's a number of them where it was just like, this was not necessary. And it, yeah, I think you're right that a lot of it was just kind of shoved in. Um, but, uh, you know, Pine leaves, Roper comes back and Jed gives like this false confession. She's, she, she's the one that initiates the apology and just says, Oh, you know, I, I want to apologize. Um, I, I did snoop around and took pictures of your documents and I didn't show them to anyone. And I'm really sorry. He's like, why did you do that? You shouldn't have done that. And she's like, I wanted to know what the man that I'm sleeping with does for a living. And you're never honest with me. You know, she pays, she definitely plays the the upset wife or I guess, you know, main squeeze well, you know, and 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 it's not obvious. Uh, well, I guess us as the audience, it's obvious because we know what's going on. But, you know, if you've been in a relationship, you know, you could see this working. Um, but I, I like how she kind of implied Corky was the leak because this was Pine's idea was we, we got to throw Corky under the bus, you know. Um, she was just like, yeah, I, you know, and Corky told me never to leave my phone around. It was like, Corky, Robert's like, Corky, just like, yeah, he found it and he brought it to me and told me never to leave it around. But I deleted the images after a week, you know, and I'm really sorry and I'll never do it again. Like, you know, I know everything you're going around. So I, I thought it was kind of cute, um, the way she played it, but I didn't, do you think, do you think it's believable that 
Roper would fall for that, considering how suspicious he is right now and who he can or can't trust? I'm going to go with I think it's literally perfect. Um, it's just enough. It's just enough of a subtle hint um, to not, you know, because she's she's putting it to Roper like, you know, Corky uh, was trying to help me, you know, and, and help us. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's at no point is she like giving any kind of like, you know, like when you're playing werewolf villager. Uh, you know, you kind of want to throw some suspicion on someone, say, hey, that guy doesn't look too good. Here she's saying like, oh, no, that guy looks great. He's totally yeah. on your side. He he totally helped me and, you know, recover from what could have been a very bad mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, but she knows that, or I mean, maybe it's too clever by half, but uh, I, I, you know, I call it perfect. Uh, the only quibble I have, this is again, one of those points where I stumbled over this problem of like, Wait a second. Did Corky not have a legitimate access to the documents? I guess not, because if he did, then all this everything falls apart. Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it sounds like he didn't, and well, especially he got cut off, you know, with uh, the whole op, you know, throwing him under the bus where he gets kind of removed from his position. Yeah, but the documents existed. But the documents existed before that. Um, well, that's true. Yeah, that's you true. know, again, like, again, that's why I wanted to mention, like, everything makes sense as long as you accept the premise. There was only ever one copy of the documents, and nobody else had legitimate, like, nobody except Roper was supposed to ever see them, ever. Right. Well, well, no, he said Sandy did. Well, then. Well, then, like I said, then your logical thing would be to go to Sandy and say, Sandy, hey, buddy, um, did you ever maybe uh, accidentally show Apostol these papers or leave them lying around somewhere where Apostol could have gotten to them? Because that would be your plausible (laughs) explanation. And that would just like it makes so much logical sense, because, again, the major fact, fact that you've got to work with on Team Bad Guy, is that Apostol wrote a bunch of handwritten shit on these papers and gave them to uh, MI6. How did Apostol get them? That's a question. That's the question you need to answer if you're on Team Mm -hmm. Bad Guy. But if Sandy or anyone, anyone ever had access to the papers, then it's a... Dude, it's a straight line of logic, and you don't have... You know... even though it would be incorrect, it's logical. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Um, oh, it, so f- from this, af- after this, we see, uh, we, we, shoot, we switch to Pine, and he's trying to get out of the fence. He uses some bolt cutters to get out. He's going to try and get the note that he has out to someone, and Corky finds him. And Corky's plan you know, Corky being the very, you know, wise clairvoyant uh, is like, oh, the power went out. That's suspicious. You know, let me go look into this. Oh, look who it is. It's Pine. How did I know? You know, uh, it's it's very, very cheeky. And he's about to, sh- you know, 
Corky's plan is to kill Pine. What, what do you think? Like, should he have tried to kill Pine or should he have taken him to Roper? Or... Also, it's like, why is he getting close to him with a gun? I hate this in movies all the time. Like, this is definitely bad self-defense points. If you have a ranged weapon, don't get next to the guy, especially if you know the guy is ex-military. You know what I mean? Like, keep your distance. It's a ranged weapon for a reason. Like, he has to get to you. You know what I mean? Like, and if he runs away, you shoot him. You know what I mean? Like, well, but- to, to be fair, to be fair, it's some pretty complicated terrain that they're on here with the hole in the fence and the steep, rubbly kind of incline Hill? that they've got. Yeah, and it's and it's true. dark and the generator's yeah. out. Right. Um, but I, I would circle back and say, like, why is why why is Corky waiting on his own? Here's where I give minus five points to Corky, and and they're definitely they're gonna get him killed. Uh, where instead of uh, okay, so if you if you go back and look through his head, he's got this information. Uh, uh, well, at least he suspects Pine went out through a hole in the fence. Go fucking tell someone. Right. Don't don't individually just lurk there and wait for whoever came back. Um. Or if you are going to do that, like do it surreptitiously so that you yeah. can get that information. So you can just watch and see who came back and then go report it to, you know, whoever. Um, but he doesn't do that. And actually, like why he, you asked the question, like him wanting to kill Pine here. I didn't actually see that. Uh, can, can, can you explain? Because I thought, and I could be wrong. I thought his plan here was I'm going to take you in. No, he said, I'm going to kill you here right now. Those those are like the words he said. Well, that's a, actually, I think that's a good idea. I'm on this side of the fence. Pine is on that side of the fence. Uh, there's a hole in the fence. I've been telling you this this guy's trouble all this time. Um, sabotage generator. Uh, you know, Frisky or Tabby might be like, well, you know, you, you, next time this happens, come and get us before you try to take care of it on your own. But uh, I would, I would call it good. I think, I think, I think if he, if he managed to put the bullet in, into pine at this point, then it's, uh, I think Corky wins. Oh, that's a good point. If he's able to kill him, then yeah. But how is he going to explain that he killed him or why he killed him? Well, I guess it works both ways because when Pine kills him, he says Corky was on the other side of the fence. So he basically does the werewolf, you know, the, the politician. I wasn't the one with the hand in the cookie jar. The guy who found me with my hand in the cookie jar was the one with the hand in the cookie jar. You know what I mean? Like, so I guess it works for Pine when he when he uh, tells on Corky. So I guess it would have worked if Corky shot him and be like, I found Pine outside. Yeah, I mean, it works out. It works out like... I, I'm a. I like it and I don't like. I think whatever it is, left brain, right brain. One half of my brain likes it because it's cool, and the other mm. brain doesn't like it because Corky should have been smarter. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it definitely like it. Just it just puts a fat fucking dead werewolf in your lap that you can that you can wrap up. Oh, and he's smart enough. And and also brutal enough, and this this kind of bothered me a little, but I guess you got to do what you got to do in the in the moment. Like he physically 
beats Corky to death in the yeah. short time that he's got uh, before, you know, Frisky and Tabby and Roper are going to show up. Because, uh, you know, the first rule of, of Paranoia, uh, a role-playing game that I used to play a lot, was that uh, the best way to... The best way for any debriefing to begin when, you know, you go up against the computer and you have to explain what happened, the best opening for any debriefing is when you can say, I speak without fear of contradiction when I say, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) 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 Which is a way to say, like, it's it's good to have everyone that could contradict your story be dead uh, before you have to answer to the authorities. So, yeah, I liked it. Yeah. Um, How do you think um, Pine throwing Corky under the bus was executed? You know, because, you know, talking it with you kind of makes me feel better about it. But whoever survived this little tussle between the two of them, I want to believe Roper would have been suspicious of. You killed one of my men. You're claiming they were the traitor. How do I know you're not the traitor and you just were the one that won? You know, you know what I mean? Like, whoever survives clearly isn't the traitor. Like, what if Corky beat Pine and goes, hey, Pine was on the outside. He's your, he's your traitor, right? Yeah, well, like I, like I said before, like, uh, I would, I would, I'm, I'm hoping, but not planning to uh, see some three-dimensional chess thinking from Roper evidenced in episode six. But right now I think the scene at the fence, it, it's just, it's just too perfect. It's just too perfect. Yeah. This, this part, this part I buy as, as Roper, if I'm Roper, uh, I'm like, yeah, this, this all fits. It all fits just too well. Uh Um, is is my only problem with the with the plot on it that like you know it, it just feels like almost a little prescient for Pine uh-huh. to have uh, told Jed to plant the seed of Corky suspicion in Roper's mind immediately uh-huh. before he goes out, and for it to just all like land so neatly into his lap as a consequence. Right. <laughs> that's all. That's all. Yeah. But what I'm looking at is Roper, like it, everything fits, and and we just we we already hit an hour. Um, let's uh, let's Let, see if we let's can, land this. Yeah, let's land this plane. Um, well, the the episode ends. The deal's made. Angela gets the note that Pine sends out. Angela calls her buddy from the U.S. And the U.S. military goes to stop the, the caravan of trucks that are supposedly delivering weapons. And all of a sudden, they get pulled over. They open it. And it's all grains and, and farming equipment and whatever. And Roper says they should have looked at the cups. And as we remember a couple episodes ago, Roper does this whole cup and ball trick. And I loved the parallel of that. Uh, and I thought it was really cool. Because uh, basically Roper's play was the the caravan coming from that compound led to believe that there were weapons um, on them, right? And and it looked like that boat, I think Angela mentioned the boat hit port and dropped some stuff off and then left. 
they thought it was dropping off the weapons there. And instead, it just never left the ship. And then they went somewhere else. And so they're all paying attention to this caravan. Everybody's putting their uh, eggs in one basket type of thing. And it turns out that they've been tricked by Roper's cup and ball trick, which I, I thought was kind of cool. Um, so uh, that's that's kind of where the episode leaves us. And we kind of got to see how things turn out after this. Very much uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. And um, yeah, it's... Did you have anything else you wanted to kind of point out? Or I'm good. I think we nailed it. All right. Sounds good. Well, that was The Night Manager, Episode 5. Um, make sure to join us next week for the final episode, Episode 6. You can listen to us at spieslikeus.net or just search Spies Like Us Podcast on any podcast app that you use. And make sure to give us a shout-out. Say hello, comment. Um, you can tweet us at spies underscore like us or our uh, Facebook page is facebook.com slash spies like us podcast. And we'll see you next week. All right. Let me just put a quick cherry on that because uh, we, we do really want to hear your feedback and uh, you know, you send, you send us anything, whether it's a comment on iTunes or a comment on Facebook. Uh, if you get, if you put uh, uh let's see, per, if you put a PTP at the end of that, capital ptp that'll be we'll take that as uh permission to publish and we'll read your comments on the episode oh that's a really good idea yeah i stole Definitely. it from another show <laughs> oh <laughs> for sure <laughs> all right man see you next week the preceding transmission sampled the song enter the party by kevin mcleod and sound effects from freesound.org attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net